Good morning, Mr. Kuki Alvarez. How are you doing today, sir? Good morning, gentlemen. I'm doing great. Thank, hey, you. thank you. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Thank you for joining us. Yes, yeah, pleasure. So, sir, we're going to jump right into it. You are from the island of Saipan that is a small island in the West Pacific, the Marianas Islands. Uh, could you tell us about Saipan and just your athletic roots in Saipan? Sure, absolutely. Well, it all started in 1977 for me. <laughs> Guess my age. Uh, my father got uh, into motocross at a very young age and he actually opened up a shop. So the family, we all moved here in 1977 and motocross was actually my first taste of extreme sports. Uh, I was six years old and uh, when my dad made the move from Guam, uh, I've been here ever since. So Saipan is, you know, we're north of Guam, not too far away, hop, skip, and a jump. And of course, you know, uh, we're right in between, or well, Rhoda and Tinian's right in between us. And, you know, we're just a little bunch of islands here with uh, people who just love to live life and do extreme stuff. So, so what does it mean to be from Saipan? You know, if you tell well, someone you're from Hawaii, they're like, well, if you tell someone from Guam, they don't know where that yeah, is. Absolutely, man. But, you know, being and coming from such a small place, um, you know, I've been actually competing in motocross in the Philippines, Japan. I've raced a few times in Hawaii and, of course, Guam and, and the Mariana regions. We even raced in, in Yap in Micronesia, believe it or not. But, man, Saipan to me, uh, you know, I've always repped uh, the island people, Guam and Saipan, but I've always repped Saipan since 77 Saipan is my home my wife and my kids are from here and so to me I like to show everybody that even though we come from such a very small tiny rock in the middle of the Pacific I truly believe that you know we can accomplish big things you know if we just put our heart and our minds to it uh of course I always like to use Frank the Crank Camacho as a prime example because he's fighting at the highest level right Mm -hmm. And he comes from such a tiny little island. So, you know, we are a proud people. And um, I know in my heart that, you know, there's a lot of potential from the island. And, you know, just believe that we can make it to the big time if we put our heart to it. So Saipan to me is, this is my home island and I'm proud to represent it. So what do you think of all the islands in the, in the Pacific? What do you think makes Saipan uh, unique or different from the rest of the Pacific? You know, Saipan is is really laid back compared to, to <laughs> Guam and, you know, uh, we really, we really are deep and embedded in our roots here. You know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people and the young kids here still speak the native tongue, Chamoru, and they still communicate uh, with their parents that way. You know, unfortunately, it's kind of slowly taking a shift. But, you know, I feel that, you know, Saipan, the Northern Marianas mainly, especially Tinian and Rhoda, you know, they're a little bit more secluded than we are. And so they really stick to their island roots, man, and just have that sense of island respect. And, you know, you can still see the young kids going around and you guys know what Fangini means, right? They go mm -hmm. around and they uh, amen and they, uh, they get blessed by the elders by taking their hand and saying nyora nyora. And they still do that up to this day. You know, I, I don't see that much in Guam these days, but, you know, Saipan is just still laid back and still really embedded in their culture, I would say. So if, you're, if you were going to, um, so there's 
what, 12 or 11 islands in the Northern Mariana Islands? Yes, if you go all the way up north, uh, right, to the Northern Marianas, right? Pagan, all the way up to Mog mm -hmm. and Urakas, yeah. Do you feel uh, connected to Rota and Tinian more than you would to Guam or not necessarily? Do you think they're all different? Well, yes, yes and no in a way. But of, of, of course, you know, um, whenever Tinian has like a fiesta, for example, or Rota has a fiesta, usually the people from Saipan love to fly over and join them. You know, and that's a yearly thing. But of course, the Guam people have come over to uh, Guam and Tinian as well when they have their fiestas. But yeah, I think we're more, you know, intact and connected to, to Tinian and Rota because they're more close by for sure. And a lot of their students or a lot of their uh, kids kind of go to school here in Saipan because, you know, the better educational system and stuff. There's a college here and whatnot. And uh, a lot of them kind of trail up take the trek up to Saipan also to look for jobs. So we're really close with the Tinian and, and Rota people, I would say. So you said you started, your athletic career started with the motor, motocross. Um, is that something that's big in Saipan or is it something your family was big into? How you know that, what? How that yes. Wow. Yes. In fact, it actually got revived in 2020 because of the COVID, okay? So, you know, COVID hit us in what, 2019? So we did motocross in Saipan, like I said. So my dad, when he opened up the shop in 77, we actually had international racers. This is, we invited racers from all over the world. We had racers from Thailand, Philippines, Japan, the U.S., um, all over. And they came to Saipan and raced international events here. This is in 79, 80, and 81. Long time ago, you know, before, before any internet and all that kind of stuff. But it was such a big hit that motocross kind of stuck here on Saipan, okay? There was this place here called the People's Park up in the mountains. And, you know, my father and all the government officials made a beautiful motocross uh, track up there. And, you know, people spoke highly of Saipan. Again, a small little rock in the Pacific after having that motocross experience. And so motocross stuck around for, for, for a good while from 81 to about 86, and then it kind of slowly died out. And then I rebuilt it and restarted it again in 1998. So there was kind of like a 12 year break in between. But then from 98, we've been active all the way, 98 to 2009. So we had another 11 year run, very popular. We were having, you know, uh, uh, series races, seasonal races and stuff. We would travel to Guam for the smoking wheels and compete against those guys and race in Tinian and Rota for the fiestas and all that. So motocross was very big. And then, you know, gas prices and the economy kind of took okay. a turn. So, you know, all the kids grew up and went to school. So, you know, it kind of shifted. So it kind of died out again in 2008. And then we reopened it in 2020. And now we're back stronger than ever. We've got over 200 members. And of course, a lot had to do with the COVID. You know, we couldn't do much stuff indoors. So we decided, hey, let's bring back our passion and our first love and, you know, uh, get to the great outdoors and start doing stuff that we love. So, man, it just all fell into place. So the motocross isn't even just a cuckoo. Obviously, in Saipan loves motocross. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, I was the main guy that kind of went around the world and represented. But, okay. man, we got a lot of amazing kids just now. Um, and we're excited uh, once the, you know, the COVID restrictions and all that totally, 
you know, ease up. We would love to get back to Guam and compete there. But, oh, yeah, motocross is real big. And I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, we did a little write-up on Frank the Crank Camacho yesterday. It was an April Fool's gag, but we told everybody that he's uh, going to shift sports and join motocross now from MMA. <laughs> did people believe you? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of calls like, dude. Is this for real? You know, we always get them, man. We always think of something good for uh, April Fools. We have you like April Fools, huh? Yeah, you know, there was one time we uh, we uh, tricked everybody that uh, the UFC purchased trench tech, <laughs> and everybody believed us. <laughs> <laughs> we also saw the one where you set up your two sons to fight. Yes, right, right, yeah. So we're always uh, trying to live into the spirit, you know, and we're always trying to think of something every year. Yeah, a lot of people believe that one too. They're like, no way. <laughs> Bro, we got halfway through the article and we were searching up the fight, and then we had to read the, the bottom of the article. Yeah, yeah, but man, we always try and one up it every year. You know, we're uh, trying our best to keep the keep keep the custom on the April Fool's thing. People still fuffle it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I got a few calls yesterday. Frank the Crank really gonna be at the track this Sunday? Wow, <laughs> where does he ride? Does he even know how to ride a motorcycle? I said when he practiced all day yesterday right here in the village, he was jumping all the speed bumps and he's ready to rock and roll. That's so awesome. So, motocross isn't the only extreme sport that you dabble in. Can you tell us a little more about your extreme sports career? Sure. Okay, so I also got into jet skiing. Again, my dad, you know, he opened up a marine sports business as well. Here in the islands, marine sports make sense. You know, everybody owns a boat and, you know, there's fishing and stuff like that. So, of course, naturally, we gravitated to that. Uh, from the motorcycle shop we also got into uh, we also ordered jet skis and, and outboard motors and such so you know when we purchased the jet ski line uh, the Kawasaki line you know we of course I, I, I was still young I would say I was around 13 14 when we first started to uh, open up our jet ski business and so you know I would be a jet ski guide so I would take the tourists to and from the beach out to the course and and come back and everything and of course you know to me it was very similar to motocross it was like motocross on the water you know you're on this stand-up jet ski you got a balance and you can do super sharp turns and everything and it's got a lot of power and so, you know, we started looking into jet ski races on Guam and in the States. And then we just started practicing and, you know, started putting our helmets on. And we, we, we put buoys out in the ocean and we started going around a course and racing with each other. And then all of a sudden I said, holy cow, this is something I think I want to try. So we signed up for the uh, world, uh, uh, the world finals in Lake City, in Lake Havasu City, Arizona, just to go try it out. And wow, it was an amazing experience. So from two, from 1990, I believe, no, no, 1988 to 19, like 97 or so, I was totally into jet skiing. And I raced the Guam series. They had Salem Fun in the Sun jet ski race series down there. And I would go like every year. Uh, I've raced in Thailand. I've won in the Philippines. I've won in Thailand. I won in Japan. So so jet skiing was something that I just kind of naturally adapted to because of my motocross experience. And I was able to compete jet skis at, a, at, at the highest level because we raced in this thing called the Salem Cup in Japan. And you had to qualify in order to make it to the main race. So you got countries from all over the world. Again, we're competing against like 25 different countries, you know. And Saipan made it into the finals. So I was ranked number 17. I was ranked number 17. 
I think that was in 2000. I'm not sorry. That was in 1991 or 92 or something. But yeah, not, not rank number 17. We raced in Japan and we made it to the final. So, you know, that was the highlight of my jet ski career. So you were 17 in the world and made it to the final. Uh, at, at one time on the, uh, on the Salem Cup. So everybody gets invited to Japan. You know, we all converge there. You have to qualify to make it into the main event. And based on those standings, I was ranked 17 at the time. So was this a race or were there obstacles? How, how were they judged? So they set up a course in the bay, you know, okay. with log jumps and everything. They actually have a, a, a pole with, with rubber tires around it. Okay, and full of air, of course, so that it floats. And you have to jump over the log jumps and go and negotiate around the turns and stuff. And then, you know, my new year racing was 20 other jet skis, so the water gets really rough. Mm. So it was, it was a good experience. We, we, we raced in the Salem Cup in Okinawa in 1990. And then, the, yeah, the Salem Cup, I believe, was in 91. It, it was some time ago, but yeah. So what is we, it about we, extreme we sports that you like so much? Gosh, you know, my father, <laughs> good old dad, rest his, rest his soul, man. He's, uh, he was always into extreme sports, and I kind of grew up around it. The first taste of extreme sports that I actually got, or that before, even before motocross, was hang gliding off of cliffs and mountains. Oh, shit. So my dad, he, would, he, he first opened up a hang gliding shop in Guam, and this was in the early 70s, as far back as I can remember. I was born in 1970, by the way, so I've been around a little bit. Um, and so my dad opened up a hand gliding shop and we would, I, we would trek with him to the mountains. I remember he had us carrying the kites. We were like four and five years old, me and my brother. Right. So that was our workout. We would hike up to the mountain. He, we'd help him set up his kites and then we watch him fly off the mountain and then land on like a bullseye or something. Cause they actually had hand gliding competitions. And so we would follow him all over. And this was actually in the States in California. Uh, before we moved to Guam so he was doing hang gliding and stuff and then when we moved to Guam I think we got to Guam in 76 because we moved to Saipan in 77 so we got to Guam in 1976 and hang gliding was getting to be real popular there uh, he helped grow the sport and then one time he wanted to uh, take us on a flight it's called a tandem flight okay so he gave us up in the harness put on our helmet and everything I was five years old and I just remembered having this amazing high. I was with my dad. I was, you know, 500 feet in the air and we're jumping off this mountain and we're flying and we're, I felt like a bird. And I think ever since then, that experience of just doing something so dangerous, yet I felt so safe. I felt so comfortable and so naturally high that I just love the adrenaline rush. I wanted to do it again and again and again. And from there, man, my my blood, my DNA just gravitated to extreme sports. So hang gliding. I don't know much about hang gliding. Is, the, is there any safety involved in this? Or are you just jumping on to something and jumping off? You know, you're only a, a few hundred to a few thousand feet in the air, right? So you got to make sure your gear is all, you know, uh, tied up and, and, and battened down. And, and you know, nothing's going to come loose in the air, you know, you're working with cables and you're, and, and you're working with bantams, they call it, you know, and you're working with kite material. You got to make sure there's no rip in your kite and everything. And that when you set up, you know, nothing's going to come apart in the air. You know, you got to make sure your rigs are all correct and strong and everything. And I remember at such a young age that my dad, how he instilled in me the importance of safety, because 
you know, it's not necessarily the extreme sport. Of course, it's dangerous by all means, but it's the preparation and the, and the safety aspect that you do before doing the extreme sport that will, you know, allow you to continue to do it at a, at a much less risk. Is there ever any casualties involved in any of these hang gladdings? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, I've literally seen people crash on the hang gliders. Now, this is during takeoff or landing. So my dad actually flew off Suicide Cliff. Have you guys heard of Suicide Cliff? Yeah. On site? It's like a 900-foot sheer cliff. And they had to build this box in order for the hang glider to go up. And you have this man that's inside the box controlling the two lines in the front of the hang glider so the hang glider is stabilized before flight. So the guy would stand in the box and my dad would, or anybody who flew off, he wasn't the only one that flew off. There were several people. Henry Simpson from Guam. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, he's yeah. really involved in all the uh, uh, extreme stuff down there, especially with the Guam Racing Association. So anyways, what happened was when when the guy is standing in the box, I'm sorry, I'm holding my phone, but he's holding the, 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 the line with both hands, okay? And then he stabilizes the hang glider. And once the, 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 the uh, operator of the hang glider says clear, he has to let the, the lines go so that he'll kind of get lift and fly off into the air, right? Well, I guess the guy panicked. And when, he, when my dad said let go, he held on to one line. So it forced my dad's kite to go like this. So he flew up, got lifted this way, and flew back into the, the cliff and crashed. Good thing it was on the top of the cliff and not the side of the cliff. Otherwise, he would have fell all the way down. So he flipped and crashed. He was fine. He virtually re redid his kite and flew off again about a couple hours later. But there was one guy that actually flew down, made it down to the landing site and crashed on the pavement and totally scratched his face. And I'm sure there's been deaths elsewhere in the world, but I've seen my fair share of hard crashes on hang, on hang gliders, you know? Sure. And, 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 and of course, in motocross, you're going to see that all the time. I've, I've, I've had friends who, who have become paralyzed, unfortunately, you know, broke their backs, broke their necks. I've, I've, I know a few people that have died in racing these things, even in jet skiing. And, you know, it's really, it's a, it's a very risky sport. I mean, you're dealing with people who want to go just as fast or faster than you, and you're racing in a closed course and you're dealing with other, you know, obstacles on the course. So of course it, it, it has the potential to be very dangerous. And of course, let's not lie. It has the potential to be deadly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But again, everything is all within your riding ability and how you prepare for the race and just simply not trying to ride over your head, you know? So you talked about this high that you got from hang glide. Mm -hmm. Can you get the same kind of high from fighting? From fighting, that's another thing I did. <laughs> I actually <laughs> fought in the cage six times, right? You know, yes, I'm always up for a challenge and Anything that kind of gets my heart beating, it's something that I want to try. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but was I afraid when I did these things? Of course, I was afraid, but I had this sense of peace, especially starting with the hang gliding. Of course, I was with my dad, so I trusted him with my life, right? So with, when you're with your dad, nothing can go wrong. So with the hang gliding, although I felt scared, I was super willing now with fighting, you know, being that I established Trent Tech, I started Trent Tech in 2004, 
you know, it all started out with, you know, the fuck eye guys and the purebred guys on Guam, you know, uh, Roman De La Cruz, of course, from fuck eye was going around holding fury fighting Island events and stuff like that. And he brought one of the events to Saipan. Okay. And then not too long after this was in 2004, he uh, brought the event to Tinian for the, for the fiesta. Okay. So of course I, I've, I've already known him for, for a couple of years at this point as and then he said, hey, Cookie, how great would it be, man? We'll bring the event to Tinian, Fury Fighting Islands. We'll bring all the Guam fighters. I just need you to look for some Saipan dudes or Tinian dudes that want to compete against the Guam guys. So I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. So, you know, I went around and I, I went to the boxing gyms and the judo and the karate gyms and, and the wrestling gyms here in Saipan. And, uh, you know, because those stuff were pretty popular back then because the uh, Saipan was competing in a lot of the games back then, you know, the micro games, the SPG games and such. So, you know, we had our little uh, gyms here and there and definitely not MMA. So when I found all these fighters, I found about seven or eight guys and we went to Tinian and we competed against all the Guam guys. Okay. So not that the Saipan guys didn't have the heart to fight because us Islanders, we love fighting, right? It's just that they lack the skill. So all of the guys that I introduced to the to the cage from Saipan, they all lost. So it broke my heart. And that was then when I said, wow, we got to definitely catch up to the game. So that's when I opened up Trench Tech. I invited Tetsuji Kato from Pure Red Japan to come over and be our main instructor. And he lived with us from 2004 to 2010. And so that's where we really picked up the game was when he came and trained us from 2004 to 2010. And that's when Saipan started to get into the level of what mixed martial arts is really all about. So we started learning the ground game and everything that we needed to learn in order to stay competitive. So before this, uh, you said mm -hmm. there were a lot of gyms. So fighting arts were still actually popular in Saipan? Maybe not necessarily gyms, call them clubs, okay? okay. So, so, so for sure there was Taekwondo, Taekwondo has been around forever. So there was always a couple of Taekwondo gyms here. Uh, the Korean community is really big here in Saipan. And you had the Kyokushinkai gyms, the Shotokan Karate gyms as well. Cause you know, Japan, uh, Japanese people, is, there's a lot of people living here from Japan as well. So they had the Taekwondo gyms and the karate gyms. And then they also had like a boxing club, okay? And then in fact, one of our coaches was running the wrestling club, Coach Joe Ocampo. He joined Trench Tech uh, after the fact, but you know, he had a few guys training as well. So, you know, it was easy to find guys that were willing. And you know, of course, MMA, Octagon Cage, you know, got boys' light, eyes light up when they hear that because they've been watching it on TV for the longest time. And when they had an opportunity to compete in it, that's when they jumped on it, you know what I mean? But they just lacked the skills, man. So they all got topped up by like a submission or something, you know? I was going to ask, so what was the, what, what was it about the skill factor that set these Guam fighters over? Was it their grappling game? Yes, yes, yes. So the Saipan boys came out swinging, you know, they came out guns blazing, man. And the, you know, the Guam guys were just all keeping a nice and tight guard. And all they did was change levels, double leg takedown, <laughs> pass the guard, side control, and either got them in an arm bar or a kimura or a rear naked choke. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I saw that, I was just like, wow, holy cow, that just totally turned me on. It's like, man, you can be the, you can win gold medals in Shotokan Karate and win all these, you know, tournaments in Taekwondo. But how do you use those uh, uh, techniques effectively when you're stif being stifled on the ground, you know? And mm -hmm. so that really turned me on. And I'm like, 
oh, wow. It's not that the Saipan guys didn't know how to fight. They just had no ground technique at all. So they all got tapped out, you know? So when you brought this, uh, when you brought the instructor out from purebred Japan, was mm -hmm. it an explosion or was it a gradual or were people like, hey. I would say it was a boom. I would say it was a boom, okay? Because, you know, a lot of people knew that these Saipan guys went to Tinian and fought against Guam guys and lost. So this kind of like Guam versus Saipan rival just all of a sudden happened, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was a good friendly rival, but it was a very competitive, you know, like, I'm going to kick your butt uh, this time uh, uh, com com competition, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when the guys, when I first brought Kato out, you know, of course, I started advertising it. I said, hey, MMA in Saipan, you know, uh, we're opening up a gym. Those of you that are interested in learning jiu-jitsu and grappling and wrestling, come train, okay? And so, of course, you know, we had a lot of people coming and training. You know, a lot of people came and went. And mm -hmm. then, of course, certainly, a lot of people also decided to open their own club, okay? So right there, I was like, you know, this is actually not a bad thing, you know? Um, it's going to allow us to compete at a local level. And so when that started to happen, teams were just kind of spawning up here and there. There were, there, there were a lot of teams, backyard uh, fighters, you know, people that train on their own, probably watch DVDs and learn how to fight, watch the UFC and learn how to fight. So then that allowed us to open up our own MMA promotion. So we opened up uh, Trench Wars. I'm sure you guys have heard of Trench Wars. And so we opened up, our, we, we built our own uh, uh, octagon cage. We actually had a little fundraiser. This was in 2005, so it wasn't too long after. It was probably about a year and some change after we started training with Kato. You know, a year is a good amount of time to train and gain some skills. And so we decided to do this little fundraiser. We're like, hey, let's call all these clubs from around to challenge the trench tech fighters, okay? We even had some friendly fire bouts, trench tech versus trench tech. This is just to entertain the crowd and kind of get the MMA scene out there. So we literally built this rectangle cage, okay? We called it the rectagon, <laughs> okay? And we fit our two 12 by 12 wrestling mats in that cage. So it was 24 feet by 12 feet. So it was a rectangle, okay? And we, you know, we sold tickets. We promoted MMA fight. You know, this is where Frank the Crank made his MMA debut. And a lot of my younger fighters, you know, uh, Giovanni Palaxi Sablon, uh, you know, my son Shane Alvrick and all these guys. So we, we, uh, we had this event. It was a huge success. We had such a small warehouse. You know, we have to chase people away because we can only fit like 200 people. And there was like 500 people demanding to come in, you know. So from there, it just boomed, man. And we were having events every year all the way until 2018 until this whole COVID shit hit. You know what I'm saying? So what, what, what was there? Was there a bounce back moment for the island of Saipan? You talk about that heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So. There was this one event, we called it Guam versus Saipan. It was called uh, Trench Wars. I think it was Trench Wars, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 collision, okay? I forgot the number, but it was a, it was a strictly Guam versus Saipan card, okay? And so when, and this was still early. I would say this was probably 2000, maybe seven, maybe eight. Uh, I got to go back to the archives, but we actually ended up a tie. Saipan won five and Guam won five. So it was like such an amazing feeling, you know, 
and then of course at be, between 2005 and 2010 we we had been traveling back and forth to Guam and competing in the PXC you know in uh, fury fighting islands and uh we've been kind of holding our own so i would bring my stipend guys down and we'd actually fight and win you know and for us anytime you anytime we beat a guam fight it was always just something to celebrate and party because we knew that guam was ahead as far as uh, uh, experience is concerned and so whenever we went down and, and were able to compete and win fights or, or even lose by a very close margin we stood very proud about that you know what i mean yeah okay so can you kind of tell us about the i know you said it was friendly but there's obviously some real beef can you tell us about that inter-island uh robbery between guam saipan or just between the islands so so guys check this out okay you know, although uh, a Saipan would always go and compete against Guam, whether we fly to Guam or Guam flies here, you know, we always had that sense of respect, okay? okay. Uh, we would compete hard, we would fight hard, die, you know, fight to the finish. But, you know, I created this, this, this mantra and I kind of created this, this saying that, you know, uh, we create friendship through fighting. Okay, that was one of our uh, selling points and everything. So, you know, we had a lot of flack uh, bringing MMA to Saipan. Um, we, we, had, we, we had a couple of public hearings. You know, there was a public outcry. People were saying we were just a bunch of hooligans going around, you know, trying to cause some trouble and da-da-da-da-da. They didn't really see the martial arts aspect of it all, okay? And so we ran into a, into a lot of road bumps. And so, you know, we had to learn how to how to let the public realize that this is a sport. This is although we're fighting and going there and we're drawing blood and, and cracking heads and, you know, spraining limbs and stuff like this. Um, you know, uh, we go in there with a sense of, uh, of, of competition, you know, goodwill competition. At the end of the day, we can walk out of that cage, you know, shaking each other's hands and, and commending each other and saying, good job, yeah? So, you know, at the time, man, Guam had this heated rival among themselves, okay? They were, man, literally, they, you, you, everyone was walking on eggshells out back on Guam. You got to literally look, look over your shoulders because, you know, you don't know where they're going to be jumped. You know, the gyms were taking it to another extreme. They were already threatening lives, and it was really bad on Guam. So Saipan, we decided to kind of like be the mediator and try and kind of draw everybody in the MMA community together, regardless of what bill you're from or what gym you're representing. And I think that, you know, we may not have, have, have done an absolute 100% successful job, but I feel in my heart that whenever we went down to Guam, we were able to just kind of hang out with everybody, you know? Uh, we were able to hang out with the Fuckeye guys, the Underworld Extreme guys, the, you know, the guys from, from, from the South and, and, and just everybody. So Saipan, in a sense, we were like the great mediators because at the same time, I was a promoter. So I couldn't show sides for anybody because if I wanted to invite fighters up to compete in Saipan, of course, naturally, I, I had to be good with everybody from Guam, you know? Um, you know, did it cause some friction between friends? Sure it did, but at the end of the day, we kind of explained our reasons why. And I feel that, you know, although there was a great rivalry, it was all in just goodwill, you know, heart to heart, you know, combatants versus combatants. You know, he who sheds his blood with me today shall forever be my brother type of thing, you know? So I think that the rivalries have somewhat slowed down in Guam. You can see uh, more cross gyms now training together. Because at the end of the day, when they go out and compete against the world, they're representing Guam. 
at the same time, us, when we go out and compete against other people, you know, we have rivalry gyms here in Saipan, but we're representing Saipan at the end of the day. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can you talk, tell us about starting Trench Tech um, before we, before this ends, we have to restart a new one, but yeah, okay. tell us about Trench Tech and the challenge you had. Sure, sure. So like I said earlier in the uh, in the interview, like we we started this because it all started when I brought the fighters to Tinian, right? And they all lost something inside me. I felt so bad. I said, oh, man, I hope these guys didn't think I was feeding them to the lions. Right. So I was like, man, I got to do something for the islands. I got to, you know, I got to be able to uh, create a, an outlet to where people can come and actually learn some skills with their already diehard, you know, a uh, 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 fighting gene that's already built in them and just teach them some of the skills to help them com be competitive whenever and if ever they decided to compete in the cage, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I opened up Trench Tech, and by the way, Trench, of course, you know, where it's, it's synonymous with Mariana's Trench, right? And sure. you notice our T design, there's, it goes down, there's a deep trench going down the middle. So that just stands for deep, you know, and then tech, of course, technique. So I was, I was just dead set on teaching these kids deep technique because that's how they all lost the first time. Okay, so I, I made a vow to, to, and I made a promise that I will not ever lead them to the lions again, but however, I'll mm. teach them to become lions themselves. Yeah, so that's what all started Trench Tech. And again, it just stuck. Here we are 16, 17 years later, uh, doing our thing and you know training is uh, training is great so the people are loving it so you guys had a fire incident in 2012 yes yeah yeah so can yeah, you kind of okay. tell us about when you first like drove up and saw that fire was yeah, there ever fall, okay so we had just got done training it was uh it was february 2012 um, we just got done with a night of great training. We went home, did our thing. And then I received a call and it was the fire department. And they were saying that, you know, Mr. Alvarez, we're here in San Antonio because that's the village where our gym was located. We called it the SA gym. Um, you know, uh, your gym is, is burning. Uh, I'm sorry to, to, to bear this news to you, but you might want to come down. So I flew down, dude. And of course they barricaded off the area, but the gym was just up in flames. I can see the flames the little, uh, uh, the, the orange, what do you call it thing? They're from my house because San Antonio is only like a couple of miles away. So when I was driving down, I just see this orange plum, you know, and just, you can just see it. So I said, wow, no way, this is our gym. So my wife and I drove in, but we couldn't go all the way in because they had barricaded in and they were putting out, they were dousing out the flame. So what we eventually found out happened was, okay, so in 2011, there was this series of arsons going around in Saipan, unsolved fires on business establishments, okay? So I think that we were a victim because when our building burned, somebody probably just threw gas and just kind of lit the place on fire. It's, it's an old warehouse, you know what I mean? It was an old garment factory. So there's some flammable, you know, wood here and there, right? So a couple of days later, another warehouse just north of ours burned down. So we knew that it had to have been arson. It was too coincidental to be just, uh, you know, uh, an isolated fire, right? So that's what happened. And man, everything burned. The octagon cage, our 45 by 45 foot mats, all of our equipment. It was, it was just heartbreaking, man. It was crazy, you know. But from that fire, 
you know, we were able to pull together as a community, got a lot of help from the community and the people around. And, you know, we were like, you know, um, we just, got, that fire helped us rebuild. You know, we were like phoenixes, you know, rising from the flames, right? So we even had events called Firepower, Resurrection, <laughs> all these cool things that we, we made 100% effort to just come back even stronger after that. Okay. All right, so that fire. So when you see this fire, was there ever a, a second where you were like, maybe it's time to, like, not that, did you ever want to just say, okay, we've had a great run, it's time to move on to something else? You know, it was, it was, it was heart-wrenching, man. It was, it was heartbreaking and, 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 and everything. But again, man, if anything, it, it just, it, it burned a fire in me. Okay. It burned a fire in me. You know, um, I was angry. I was, I was mad. I wanted to kill somebody, you know, but who, right? We, we don't know, you know, and, and it was that unknown, you know, we even made a song called firepower. You can look it up on YouTube. It's uh, from the trench tech all stars. <laughs> uh, these guys have a few songs out anyways. Um, it burned a fire in us and it just, uh, not forced us, but just, made us do it something from within you know that fire burned within us to say wow you think you're going to bring us down this is only going to make us stronger man and it was such an amazing um it was kind of you know you could say bittersweet or whatever but what it was is is that this is a time when we were at our absolute lowest where people came together and became their absolute best to help us rebuild Okay, we had people in the community, you know, just doing fundraisers for us and donating money to us. And you know, we had people from the business community uh, offer us their places free of charge just to open up our gym. And in fact, I can't go without saying and giving a huge shout out to Mr. Eric Vandermoss from the Marianas Business Plaza because it was he who opened up his whole seventh floor. Well, one half of it at least. It's a very big building. Um, and allowed us to use that 3,500 square foot area. He could have used it, you know, to rent out to a business and, and, and make, I don't know, five, $10,000 a month on it. But he allowed us to use that free of charge for a whole year until we were able to get back onto our feet. And so, you know, the community came together, helped us out, and that just made us come back a lot stronger. You know what I mean? So this is obviously a life, like changing experience sure uh, huge part of your life what was and seeing all these people uh come together for you guys what was what was there a huge lesson you learned from this or something that uh stayed with you until this day you know it uh it 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 really showed me the compassionate side of, of the human race you know i mean there was a lot of haters out there at the same time and i'm sure there are you know there were people who actually kind of enjoyed seeing that happen to us right but you know you got to give, you know, accept the good with the bad. And I would say in this case, good prevailed hundred percent because, you know, I really saw the human compassion and just this humility of, of the people who sincerely wanted to help us in one way or, or the other. You know, I even had uh, guys from other gyms, even donating boxing, you know, just a simple gesture of donating boxing gloves that, you know, they could be using for their gym. And even if it was only one pair, that was, to me was just as important as a guy that, that was donating $2,000 cash, you know, because it was the giving that really opened my eyes and just 
taught me, well, not necessarily taught me, just made me realize even more uh, when you're at your lowest low, man, there's going to be people out there that are sincerely willing to help you out. You know what I mean? So did you realize how meaningful MMA was to Saipan before this, or did this kind of take it to a new level? This opened your eyes up. Definitely added some adinimoto on top, you know, it definitely added some flavor and everything and kind of, yeah, you know, like I said, so this happened in 2012, we were, we were busting events and just kicking butt, you know, ever since 2005. So we were already in it for what, seven years, you know, and then when this happened, it, it um, again, it, it just burned the fire in us to, to, to kind of rise and resurrect and just become phoenixes and become even better, you know, and show everybody that no matter what the situation is, when you put your mind to something, you can definitely accomplish great things. Cause you know, we had a choice, you know, we could have sat in self pity and, and just asked all the 103,000 questions why, you know, and felt sorry for ourselves. But, you know, we looked at the situation and said, okay, we got a choice. You know, we can either sit in self-pity or we, or we can rebuild this thing and make it even better than it was before. So I think that the fire definitely made us better than before. So you're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of this fire, 2022. Will there be a, a celebration event or a fight what? event for this? It, it was, it's already the 10th year because it happened in February, right? So we're already, oh, okay. already a couple months ago. 10 years ago, a couple months ago, um, you know, we, we shared about it and talked about it and uh, reminisced about it for sure, you know, popped up on our, uh, on our feeds and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's always good to go back and, and just talk about it and reminisce and, and just see how far we've came from it. So it gives us this sense of peace in our heart, knowing that, you know, uh, we rebuilt, uh, we moved forward. And here we are today, bigger and better, you know, uh, despite all the odds and everything that has happened. Remember, we actually went through a couple of super typhoons up here on Saipan as well. Typhoon Sodalor in 2017, I think it was. And then not too long after in 2018, gosh, or 2000, I think Sodalor was 2015 or 16, but not too long ago, a couple of two, three years later, typhoon u2 hit okay and look at this structure guys this is an indoor outdoor structure you got the things up there with the you know this and you know the wind was coming from that area blowing in could have easily blown the roof off the off the floor but you know well i don't know you know by the grace of god or whatever it may be uh the strength of the spirit of trench tech i think somehow managed to save this gym from two super typhoons. Now, these super typhoons were recorded as one of the strongest typhoons in the world, in the history of the world. And so when the gym stood and did not break down where so many other structures didn't fare so well, I really truly feel that whatever you call it, man, some sort of a spirit, you know, is, is, is really protecting this place. Trench tech strong. Trend stick strong, and there was a saying of that too as well. Oh, uh, strong, for sure. Kiss so me. So after the, <laughs> go on. No, I said kiss me. I'm trench tech. We even had a T-shirt that said kiss me. <laughs> 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 we made light out of the all the negative stuff that 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 happened. I see. So after the fire, was there a big event where you were like, "All right, we're back"? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I think the first event we had, if I'm not mistaken, was resurrection. Okay. We wanted to show everybody that we, we were resurrected from this fire regardless. Right. And then we even had another event following that called firepower. We wanted to show everybody that we can create power out of this fire. Okay. So we really came up with some cool themes, man. And I know there's more, I can't really think of it right on the top of my head, but we had several events dedicated to the fact that, you know, the fire could not stop us. It brought us down, but it could not keep us down. And we kept moving forward. And uh, yeah, so it, it, uh, it, like I said, man, it just, it just made for bigger and better things to happen, ultimately. So where does your experience of throwing MMA events come from? Well, okay. Again, let's go back to my good old dad. <laughs> so my dad hosted many motocross races. He was the president of the club. And I grew up in that environment. I saw him, you know, putting together hang gliding events, putting together motocross events, he even put together race cars events here, you know, and, and, you know, he owned, uh, 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 an auto shop. So he would, he actually sold three brands of cars, Suzuki, Isuzu, and Mitsubishi. We were one of the only car dealerships in the world that actually sold three different brands at the time. This was in the early eighties and whatnot. Okay. So my dad would also put together these cruising contests, right? You know, you know, uh, pretty up your car, you know, uh, uh, custom your car. And then he, he put together these cruising contests, this, uh, contests and stuff and, and and we go cruising around and I remember him you know setting up a stage and you know the cars drive by and he was just this promoter extraordinaire that I had the privilege of growing up watching so I think again that experience knowing without even knowing kind of allowed me to just be able to promote events like I have this knack and I have this passion of of promoting things right and so it just came full circle and I was able really to do it without any experience. We kind of just jumped on it and did it. And along the way, we figured things out. And man, I think those sometimes are the best ways to do it, at least in my experience. Would you say that you're an eccentric promoter too? I would say that. Uh, I could get pretty eccentric, you know. Uh, I'm very passionate, I think, is, is, is the word. Like, I'm there helping the guys put the cage together. You know, I'm there after the event, helping them break the cage down. I want to make sure that everybody's happy and, and, and everything goes smooth. You know, sometimes I even jump into the event and I'm a referee in my own event, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, my sons are fighting in the event. So I, I'm wearing so many hats. I, I got to make sure that, you know, that the, that the, the customers and the fans are happy and I got to go around and make sure that, you know, they're being served and, and they're being taken care of and, and I just indulge myself. And um, I really think that it's, it's, it's you, you really can't be taught that. You, you either love to do it and are, and are so gung-ho about it or you're just saying, oh, this is too much work. I'll just let everybody do it and I'll just kind of sit back. You know, no, I'm, I'm in there doing it. You know, I'm, I'm going, I'm flying off you know, to Guam fighting in Fury fighting islands and representing trench tech. And, you know, the pressure is big, man. I mean, you know, Cookie Alvarez opens up trench tech, lets all his fighters fight, but does he even fight, you know? So I had to <laughs> go there and prove that I don't just talk the talk, but I walk the walk, right? So I had to 
under that extreme pressure because man, I, I was very afraid of losing and, you know, getting egg on my face and, you know, saying that trench tech is the best and this and this. And then, you know, the head instructor or the head owner, he can't even go into a cage and fight and he gets his ass kicked, you know? So that was really my biggest fear. And, you know, going, so like when you asked me in the beginning, I'm, do I have this sense of fear or am I afraid? Certainly I'm nervous and I'm, and I'm, this thousand stuff is going in my mind, man, what if I get knocked out? You know, what if this guy submits me and, and I'm supposed to be trench tech and, and you know, what if this guy embarrasses me in front of my family and my kids and all my students. And so, man, the pressure was on, but I've always strived under pressure. I think, you know, it kind of brought out the best in me. And I think that when you're afraid, it kind of brings your heightened sense of awareness to full play, even if you don't know it. What was what was your favorite? Uh, did you ever have an infamous shit talk moment when you had to promote a fight? <laughs> you know, I was really never one to shit talk, man. Honestly, okay. um, I was kind of that guy that I would like. Like my opponents would totally shit talk on me. Sure. You know, oh, this guy from Trench Tech, he thinks he can kick my ass. Well, you know, come Saturday night, I'm gonna show everybody this and this and that. So I, I've had a few shit talkers, you know. But you know, whenever I get interviewed and they say, "Hey, you know, this guy was saying this and he was saying that, man. What does Cookie Alvarez have to say about that?" And I say, "Ah, oh, what's 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 you know what's your game plan against the striker? You know, when you bomba, for example, you know, he was known for knocking dudes out, man, and everything. So you know, I was like, my 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 strategy for when you bomba, I'm just gonna go in there." you know, kick him in the ribs, take him down and submit him. And that's exactly what I freaking did, man. Let <laughs> so, them do all this shit. Like, oh man, you know, people are saying you're going to get knocked out. You know, he's the freaking, uh, he's the freaking brawler from, from, from the field. He's going to come and take your head off and this and this and that. You know, when you and I are actually friends, when you <laughs> fought in my event here in Saipan before I fought him in the PXC. Holy shit. So again, I, I had to live uh, and walk the walk uh, about that friendship through fighting, okay? So, of course, you know, he had to sell the fight. I had to sell the fight. But, you know, I told everybody, I said, man, when he's my friend, I don't know if I can go in there and really hurt him, you know? So I'm just going to tap him out. I'm just going to submit him, you know? So, you know, kind rage, right? Like beat him <laughs> with, a, kill, kill him with love, right? So that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> so from the promoter side, do you have a favorite storyline that you ran? For 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 like the motocross? No, for fighting. Oh, like a, for, go go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, just um for like an MMA I, promotion. Go MMA ahead, fight you through. Oh, like do I have a favorite? A favorite fight, like favorite storyline that you were uh, trying to promote, like an angle that you were trying to promote for a fight. Mm-hmm. Like okay. two fighters. So was, yes, yes, yes. So there was this one event that we had. It's Trench Wars 3. It was called Trench Wars 3 Commotion. So Trench Wars 1 was fight night. Trench Wars 2 was caged in. And Trench Wars 3 was this event called Commotion. Because we're actually by the ocean, right? So we called it Commotion by the Ocean. Okay? And so the, there was this, there, there this ex-con who just got out of jail. And he was known to be the man in the jail, right? In the in, 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 in jailhouse. And... There was this officer, I'm pretty sure you may have heard of him, Officer <laughs> Tarkov. 
Jason Tarkon fought several times. He's got about 12 or 13 fights under his belt. Fought in the PXC, fought here in Saipan under my events mainly. And he was one of my main students. He was one of the OGs. Older guy, he's probably like 55 now. But he was a police officer and the ex-con. So we, our theme was Trench Wars 3 Commotion, Cop versus Con. So, man, when we sold that, dude, everybody came to watch that fight because this guy who was an ex-con, I, I won't say his name, but, you know, he was known in the community for just being a hooligan, man. This guy was a troublemaker. He wasn't in jail for, for he was in jail for a good reason, right? You know, he had, he just had bad rap. And he was like the leader in the jail. Like, everybody feared this guy. And so now that we were able to bring a cop and a con, actually bring them together and make them fight, where nobody's going to get arrested. Dude, Jason freaking made this guy look dumb, bro. Freaking beat the crap out of him and freaking submitted him, you know? So that was one of a, one of my favorite all-time storylines and themes to push. Commotion by the Ocean, Cop versus Con, Trench Wars 3. Was there, uh, were there a lot of people happy to see the cop win? Oh, yeah, of course. But then there are also a lot of, like, the guys that support the ex-con. So the bad it boys. was 50-50, man. Everybody was rooting for the con to, you know, to, to beat up the pig, right? Sorry. You know, that's the term. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wanted to see the cop go down, man. But the cop is, it's, he was a good cop, man. So it was <laughs> nice to kick the, the, the bad guy's ass, so to speak. You know Do what I mean? Do you think it instilled a sense of humility? Oh, in yeah. The, at the, the, con? the day, man, that freaking ex-con guy was humbled came up and bowed shook the police officer's hand and even waved to the crowd and he accepted his fate he, he accepted his fate and, and guess what he became a better person after that sorry, was there ever broken, a fight that uh, was that? Uh, i'm sorry broken walker what am i saying that broken walker just arrived but but she's gonna be walking in so so we're good okay tell her what's up i will uh, uh, so then, do you think uh, it was there ever a fight that you there was no storyline, but you guys just put a storyline there anyways to sell it? Um, you know that kind of started out. So we actually have these grudge matches, okay? Legit, straight up grudges outside of the octagon, okay? And people wanted to settle their differences. So instead of fighting out on the streets, right, to where it could be either deadly or, you know, people get arrested, people started approaching me, actually, and asking if they can fight each other in the cage to settle their differences. So in the beginning, we just kind of, we kind of never really hyped it up. We just kind of said, okay, come inside, sign the contract. You agree to fight this guy. You agree to fight that guy. But here's the deal. When you guys fight and, and whoever loses, you know, you guys shake hands. And the grudge is squashed. If you guys want to fight again, you can do it again in the cage. But no more BS outside, okay? Mm -hmm. So, man, that kind of actually became a thing when the first couple of fighters kind of did that grudge match. We didn't really advertise it out because we had another theme for the event. But during the event, we said, hey, guys, okay, this next match is a grudge match. You know, these two guys are having issues out on the streets and have, you know, <laughs> the, the humility to come up to me and say, Mr. Alvarez, we want to settle our events in the cage. What can you do for us? So I was able to hook them up. So tonight, we have the privilege of watching this grudge match, okay? So then, man, that kind of became a big thing after that. And then we almost every other, every event, we had guys settling their grudges in the case. So then we started to promote these grudge matches alongside the original themes, you know? Hey, so we'll, we'll promote like trench wars, um, uh, 
Guerra or something like that, right? Hey, don't forget, man, fight number nine is going to be this grudge match between this guy and that guy. We even had a female grudge match. Two girls took out their took out their anger and their differences in the cage, man. So it the were they trained match, fighters or no? What was that? Were they even trained fighters or no? You know what's so funny? Some of them don't even are not even uh, 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 trained fighters. They just came in and they freaking just made their hands fly and they beat the shit out of each other. But all in good, all in a good result at the end of the day, right? They ended up shaking hands and the grudge was squashed. So I think that we did our part as far as, you know, uh, creating friendship through fighting. And that was one of the highlights. In fact, there were several because there was a lot of grudge matches after that. Yeah. So, yes, no, these girls didn't even, they probably were never trained fighters, but boy, did they want to kick each other's ass. And, you know, they did exactly that. And the beautiful thing, you know, at the end of the day was, they literally became friends after that. Maybe they're they're not buddies, they're not besties, but they're no longer watching over their backs as they go out to to, to you know out on the out out on the scene, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're good, you know. And I and, and I think that um, a lot of these issues have kind of slowed down. Of course, definitely didn't stop, but we were we created this opportunity to give people a chance to come and settle their differences in the best way possible, you know. And you're big on nicknames. Uh, where do you oh, yeah. get your creativity for all these nicknames you come up with? <laughs> Man, funny you say that because I actually gave a lot of the guys their nicknames right off the bat. Like, I mm-hmm. named my friend the crank. Mm-hmm. So, so we want to ask you about getting your black belt. Okay. Uh, so when you got, you said you, when you were 42, you said you wanted to get it before you were 50. And I believe you got it when you were 49. Uh, and you, got, you got the same day as Frank. Yes, it was one of my goals. You know, I see, you know, I, I, and I made it a realistic goal. You know, we were training in MMA for the longest time. I really didn't get into the gi until around 2013, 14, maybe. And at that time, yes, I was about 42, 43 years old. And I said to myself, you know, I'm going to have a goal. You know, I've, I've done not, you know, I've done pretty much everything I needed to do in the MMA scene. But, you know, my goal as far as uh, BJJ now is to get my black belt before I'm 50 because I literally have to start out as a white belt, right? I mean, of course, you know, been doing MMA for the longest time, so I was pretty good in submission grappling. But in the art of actual jiu-jitsu with the kimono, of course, you got to start with a white belt. So, you know, in 2014, I just kind of set my mind. I said, you know what? I'm going to focus a lot on this. I'm, I'm not getting any younger. And I think this is something that I realistically can do. And I just kind of held the course, stayed on the course, and it all just came full circle, man. And yeah, a couple of years ago, I think I already got my black belt. Did you have any idea that it was going to happen? I mean, I was definitely on a journey. I was definitely on a mission, you would say, because, you I'm know, like the day I, of the day happened. Did you have any idea? I mean, of no. course not. I was just so. So this is what happened along the way. Like I would always correspond with uh, Professor Steve Roberto. You know, just, man, I would send him videos. He would send me videos. And this was like two, three years before I got my black belt. You know, I was just always corresponding with him and just indulging myself in the arts and, you know, just asking him questions, picking his brain and just really getting into the BJJ scene. So, you know, from there, you know, he would fly over to Saipan. I'd invite him over and he'd come and check up on us and make sure that we're doing our thing over here. He'd hold some seminars and just jujitsu really started to grow. 
Okay. And so again, I just became more deeply indulgent in it. and man, you know, after a couple of uh, seminars, he came over, he promoted me to, to purple belt when I went to Guam for the grand opening. And then probably about a year after that, he came up to Saipan and had no idea, you know, we had a, a seminar, we did some roles and he promoted me to brown belt. And then I think two years later, I got my black belt. It was like a crazy fast journey, but man, within that so from 2014 to 2020, yeah, was that six years? Six years of just really digging myself deep into the arts. So what did that mean for you to, because Frank got promoted right Frank after that. What did that mean? That's right. Yeah, as a coach, what did that mean for you to get promoted well, with him? That was such an amazing night, man, because, you know, we had a full house of students to go. Okay, so going back to the night Frank and I got promoted. So, again, we had invited Frank, uh, uh, Coach Berto, out, right? And, you know, Coach Berto has been flying to Saipan uh, at least two times a year, you know, from, from 2014 to just come and hang out with us and, and teach us jiu-jitsu and everything, right? And so, you know, when, when, he, he, when he came out in, in, I think it was June or July, I forgot. Anyways, he came out, but then he brought like, like all these black belts. He goes, Cookie, I'm going to bring out Roman. I'm going to bring out professors, uh, you know, um, uh, Will, Escobar, and, and, and a few other guys, right? Uh, James Pike and, and all these guys. That, and I was super stoked. I'm like, dude, that would be so awesome because I don't think they've ever been to our new gym. So the furthest thing from my mind was me getting promoted. And then I said, dude, it's going to be such a perfect timing because Frank the Crank's going to be out here on that weekend as well. So, man, you know, we had a great turnout. There was like about, man, I would say like 30 of us on the mats that night. You know, all my students came out because when I mentioned, whenever they hear Frank the Crank or, you know, Professor Steve Roberto, everybody just wants to come and just, wow, they're in awe. So it really turned out to be a great night. And, you know, all the students were here. So, you know, uh, and it was really a night of promotion. So before I was a black belt, of course, I couldn't promote my students. So I would always ask Professor Berto to come out and promote the students I felt were, were ready to be promoted. Okay. So for like two or three trips, he would come out and promote all my students. Right. And then so on that night when when he promoted me and then promoted Frank, he actually said, Cookie, now that you're a black belt, you have the honor of promoting your students tonight. So it was just an amazing time. I had no idea. Frank had no idea. Frank was in tears <laughs> of happiness. And it was just, wow, it couldn't have been any better, man. Uh, you know, I'm Frank's mentor, his first original sensei. And then now we both get our black belts together. So it was just so unexplainable. I, I can't explain the feeling. It was so beautiful and so amazing. Yeah. So Frank is a name that we mentioned a lot throughout this podcast. Mm -hmm. What does his success mean to you? Wow, man, that, you know, whenever Frank comes out, I just use him as a prime example, mainly to our youths, our, our children, you know, those people who really just think that, you know, we're just from Saipan, we're, we're, we're from a small little rock. We, we cannot accomplish great things. You know, that's just our, that's just the way it is. You know, so I always use Frank as a prime example. And I say, guys, look at this, man. Frank is the epitome of what the potential possibilities are. You know, he started out just like you. He walked into the gym curious and wondering what's going on, right? Like, can I even do this? Because Frank really walked into the doors for the first time in 2005. And he was really just there to lose weight. You know, and of course, he, 
he 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 was excited about the whole MMA hype too at, at the time. So he wanted to see what MMA was all about, you know. And so when Frank came in, one thing about Frank is he kept going and never stopped. You see what I'm saying? So now that he's fighting at the highest level in in in, in one of the in the best promotion in the world, it really just makes me feel proud and just makes me feel this sense of accomplishment and not only accomplishment but this sense of proof now we can prove without a shadow of a doubt to to anybody who asks is it possible to make it to the big time and i point no to nobody but frank you see what i'm saying and of course you know us being a big part of his upbringing along, along the way um it goes to show that i think we truly have the credentials and we truly have the expertise to help you accomplish your goals if that's something you want to do. And as a coach, how does it feel to know you are a UFC caliber coach? I'm proud, um, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's never been something that I wanted to be known as. It just kind of happened throughout the whole training process. Because for us, this is a journey. This is... I was learning along the way. Remember when I told you that sometimes we just do things on the way, right? Like we don't plan these things out. So when, you know, Frank got the call to make it to the UFC, we've always had a goal that, you know, uh, we wanted to make it to the big time. So I said, okay, Frank, I'm going to respect that goal and I'm going to do everything in my power to help you get there, you know, with what, with whatever resources we have. And so throughout the years, you know, uh, especially with Kato, Kato was a world caliber fighter anyways, you know, dude fought Anderson Silva. So just Kato himself teaching us uh, what he was taught in Japan, in purebred Japan, uh, we kind of just took that training and, 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 and did it just, you know, uh, re religiously and just kept at it and never really looked at, oh, I'm going to do this because I want to be a... Uh, uh, a coach of the year or I want to do this I want to be known in the world as the best coach in Saipan it was never ever that it was just I loved doing it it is something that we were passionate about it is something that um, we had gold in in doing and it just kind of mended itself along the way um, and now that you could call it an accolade I would say or or an accomplishment of course I'm proud and 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 I just use it as as ammunition to say hey guys you know, man, be happy that you're training here because you're training at one of the best gyms, you know? So you got a few more questions left. We know you got to go. No problem. Uh, nope. What, so this, is, this isn't even really just about MMA. It can't have MMA. You can't have trench tech involved. But what is mm -hmm. your uh, dream for Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands going forward? And where do you see yourself and trench tech playing in it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man, I... I I always think long-term, you know, I look at these little kids, look at all these little kids, guys, these guys are tiny and they're just on the mat doing their thing with Professor Brogan. You know, I look at five years down the road, right? Like, of course, certainly it's a, it's, it's a long road, but it's always been a long road. You know, we've been doing this with, uh, you know, Frank, when he first walked through the door, the dude was only like 14, 15 years old, you know? And so now when I look back and I say, wow, time flies like it, it felt like just yesterday that frank literally walked through the front step for the first time and so i kind of just always look and think long term you know um i don't set myself on a definite goal 
but I kind of try and reach little goals along the way. So like my goal was to open up this MMA kids class. And so the kids class is just about a year old or going on a year and it's growing. And so, you know, the bigger it gets, the better for us and the better for all the kids who are, who are joining in the BJJ kids class is something I just started about a year and a half, two years ago. And that's growing up real well too. So, you know, did we really, make a set plan no we just thought hey you know what man let's get the kids involved you know let's get the kids involved hey let's start teaching kids mma and now that you know it, they've been showing up every saturday i gotta be here every saturday now but i'm very happy to be here so i think that my long-term girl goal is really just to continue to uh do what we do to continue to um uh, give an outlet for all these people who want to train and and whether they want to become uh, professional fighters at the highest level or whether they just, they just want to be better people at the end of the day, we're definitely going to be here for them and allow them to do that. Are there any political aspirations for Mr. Alves? Political? Yeah. Political. You know, man, I really separate myself from politics. <laughs> I don't get involved in politics. Too many of my friends are politicians and I've just seen too much, ugh, too many. I've lost a lot of friends from that, right? And not mainly to me, but from each other. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? So my, our mutual friends are no longer friends of them. Political, no, I try and stay away from political, you know, um, and I just do my thing. And guess what? We actually had the governor here training a couple of days ago, training right. MMA with the Crank Camacho. So I'll leave it at that. You know, the governor is endorsing us. He's always been supportive of us. And the people in the uh, political arena here uh, have never you know, really tried to throw a stone in what we're doing. They realized long ago um, when we first had that public hearing when people were trying to debate it, that in the end of the day, we're really just trying to do a positive for the community. And so I think they gravitated to that and now they support Trench Tech more than ever. So I kind of, no, I won't get involved in politics. I mean, I okay. hope I answered the question, but yeah. Yeah, we just asked because you're, you're all, over, you, you do it all. Cookie for governor, right? <laughs> All right, last question. Um, what advice do you have for anybody who wants to be a black belt in life and anything they do? What do I have? What? Okay, one more time. Sorry about that. What advice do you have for anybody who wants to be a black belt in life in anything they do, whether it's jujitsu or politics or business or whatever? Right. Okay, so what I always tell my students, man, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of these kids, when they come into the gym, they're just wide-eyed. They see Frank the Frank Camacho, they see Coach Cookie Alvarez, and they see this gym, and, you know, <laughs> you know Frank and, and uh, some of my fighters are on the rafters, and, you know, Frank's UFC poster is right here, you know, his UFC poster is right on the wall. You know, we got our, you know, like when the kids come over and they see that, they just have this big, ah, oh, they're wide-eyed, and they're like, wow. You know, and, and a lot of people, at the end of class, I always stand up and I say, hey, guys, you know, all of you guys that are training, listen, if this is something you want to do, all I can tell you, you see me and Frank, you see our black belt, guess what? We're just white belts that never stops. You know, we were once like you in the back of the line. You, yes, you, you little 12-year-old dude over there, right? You know, you got a white belt. If you think in your mind that, you know, we're some sort of superhuman or whatever, because we're just because we're wearing a black belt you're wrong the only trick to jiu-jitsu is don't stop training it could take five years it could take 10 it could take 20 but the but the but the thing there is just don't stop 
And if you don't stop and you're passionate and you commit to, to really putting in quality time into something that you choose to do, then you will be successful in that. All right. Thank you, sir. Dude, pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, we hope you had a good time. I had a great time, man. Let's send me the link. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you know when it is.